Well, welcome to Mission Hill. If you're new, welcome to Mission Hill. If you aren't, um, my name is Trev. I'm also one of the pastors here on staff at Mission Hill. We're in a good series. Uh, by that, I am not self-promoting as much as I'm really thrilled with what I have been able to learn in this series. The book of Luke is where we find ourselves. We're seven chapters in today. Um, and there's lots of amazing things that I have uh, personally discovered, I think, through this process. I, I want to read our text for you. Um, if, you, if you have one of those little cards, actually, you'll only have verses uh, 1 to 17 listed, but I, I think actually we need to deal with the rest of the chapter. So I'm going to read, uh, not the rest of the chapter, just uh, the rest of the next section, all the way to 35. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent, him to, el he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, turning to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, though among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the, tax, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is God's word. Let's ask for his help to understand it. So Jesus, first of all, I would ask that you give to us your spirit so that our hearts may be opened to your word this morning through the understanding of our minds and the opening of our hearts. Our decision-making centers, Jesus, we need help to repair them from the dead. Give me the proper words to describe your words this morning, Jesus. I also need your help and your spirit so that we may hear your word for us as a church family. It's in your name I pray. Amen. And so our series is called The Savior of the World, and that's actually the title of our text, which is The Savior of the World, because Luke is writing to people so that they may understand that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, there's something really uh, crazy interesting about this text if you want to nerd out on themes and connections. And actually, this text, those three stories are stories about three prophets. Now, I, I, I say that not because I discovered, because someone I read who is smarter than I am said that. But as I began to see it more in the text, I realized how helpful it was to see that. This is yet another example of Jesus actually performing miracles, not just in the sense of what he does in the miracle, but where he does the miracle and to whom as a way of displaying who he thinks he is. I mean, that just shows you right there how powerful God really is. It's not just that he did the miracle, it's that the miracle is almost a sidebar to the larger picture. So here's the larger picture. What's happening in the first uh, story with the centurion servant actually is almost a perfect imitation of a story found in the Old Testament in 2 Kings for, uh, or, sorry, 1 Kings for Elijah. I, I might get these mixed up. Um, no, sorry, it's 2 Kings. And it's Elisha. 
And then the second story is about the widow's son, and that is Elisha. And the third story is about John the Baptist, who everyone thought was a great prophet, who is considered the second Elisha, or Elijah. I'm sure even Hebrews got this mixed up, by the way. <laughs> I was like, it's no accident that it's like, one's like a John, and the other's the Shah. But anyways, I'm probably butchering those names. But there, there is a, there's a, Interesting connection here. Now, here's why this is important. So far, we have seen Jesus as the authoritative son of man that's described in Daniel, but now he is describing himself as the way better Elijah, the way better Elisha, the way better John the Baptist. He's describing himself as the great prophet. In fact, that's why we find this in the text. Oh, there is a great prophet. That's why they said that. So I want to take you quickly through the first two stories, and then we'll make some applications. Then I want to take you through the last story and end off there. And I I just simply want to divide our time up by saying this text is very helpful in that it shows us how we can respond to Jesus properly and not properly. Because this is about how people respond to Jesus properly and not properly. Appropriately and inappropriately. Uh, The first two are essentially, here are are ways, first of all, we can reject Jesus. Second, ways we doubt Jesus. And third, ways we can actually respond accordingly to Jesus. Now, what's the difference between the first two? You're just going to have to wait, hang out a bit. And trust me. The uh, The first story is perhaps... Maybe a unique one, and it's a story about the healing of a, of a Roman centurion's son. Now, if you know anything about the culture of the time, you know that Romans and Jews, let's just say, on their report cards, they get a does-not-play-well-with-others report on their report card. They, they don't do so well together. They tolerated each other for the most part. So the fact that, A, there is a centurion, and the the word centurion is where we get the word sentry from. Uh, It means to be in charge of at least 100 men, which is a substantial, I would say, uh, position. And this centurion actually has favor amongst the Jews to the point where they actually say to Jesus, this centurion is worthy of you healing or, or getting involved with his life. That's remarkable in and of itself. Because for a Jew to go to bat for a Roman who typically they hated, I mean, they were the ones collecting the taxes, right? So the tax collectors that everyone hates, it's the Romans who are responsible for this. But the opposite is also true. It's also very remarkable that Jesus pays careful attention. Now, we may say, what does all that matter? Well, here's the parallel story because uh, we actually studied this at the very beginning of the year. It's the story of Naaman, who, by the way, is also a Gentile. He's not part of Israel. You'll find it in 2 Kings. He, he also reaches out to a great prophet. He also asks for healing. He also doesn't deserve it, and he also receives it at the word of Elisha. It's, it, the parallels are uncanny. There is no mistaking, if you know that story, that you can clearly see it outlined here. This is why he does this. 
because he has already alluded in Luke chapter 4, hey, I want you to know someone great is here. I want you to know that someone greater than Elijah or Elisha is here. The second story about Jesus raising this widow's son, again, a little bit of background to this story is that if you were a widow and your only son died, it was essentially cultural, physical, financial suicide as well. Like you were almost cut off. Your resource line was done. There was no hope for your future. This was the end of her life as she knew it. So she is in a desperate situation. Notice, the widow did not ask for healing. She is not told approaching anyone. They they come across her. Now, I want to show a map just to give you an idea where all this is. So if you can turn the slide from the map. That's an inside joke for those of you who are new. Because Corey, Corey Payne is successfully guilted me for not having maps. So it actually is courtesy of Corey Payne, thank you. Now, what I want you to see is that the popularity, and I, I'm one up to you, Corey, so you're gonna have to come up with a laser pointer. <laughs> Beat that. What, what's happening here is, this is where Jesus ends his life in Jerusalem. Spoiler alert, he's gonna die on the cross in Jerusalem, okay? Um, this is where all this is happening. That's Capernaum. This is, apparently I'm nervous. That's Nazareth, and that's Nain. So he's up here, and he happens to be here, quite some, some ways away. What in the world would he be doing there? Well, here's really what's been happening, is that Jesus is God, and he actually is fully aware that what he's going to do is going to be so controversial that if he's actually too close to Jerusalem where all of the spiritual power and the religious power of the Jewish people lies, he's going to get killed too soon. He's actually avoiding public appearances as much as he possibly can at the same time of displaying his authority and who he is so that he can perfectly land exactly where, just like Gandalf, precisely when he wants to. He wants to land ultimately up during Passover so that everyone can see he's the Passover lamb. Okay? This is very important to him. So important that he spends all his time in the rural areas, essentially, not because he's afraid, but because he knows exactly what's going to happen when he says what he does. So why name? It doesn't make any sense, except for the fact that this is exactly like Elijah, who also knew a widow, and her son tragically died, and he miraculously raised this son from the dead. Only, here's the difference. Elijah had to lay on top of this guy, breathe, do special things. He had to pray. Do you know what Jesus does? Get up. Now, when he does that, he is saying, Elijah had to appeal to somebody to raise someone from the dead. I don't. He can speak a word and someone comes alive. Now, I don't want us to go past the miraculousness of this here. 
because one of the reasons why it's helpful to look at a map is to remember this isn't a fairy tale. This is not a myth. This happened. There was a place this happened. We could go on this earth if we knew to a place, a GPS place, where this actually happened, where someone could authenticate it and would say, yes, I was in that funeral procession and I watched that young man start talking. And he was dead. He was already starting to smell a bit. So I don't want to just pass over this like this, this isn't miraculous, but here's what's amazing. That's not even the point for Jesus. And here's why I know this, is that in the text that Jesus tells John to eventually carry back, he actually puts the raising of the dead, not last, but second last, the primary, the climactic part of what Jesus wants John the Baptist to know is the preaching, of the, the preaching of the gospel to the poor. That's his highlight. Now, how powerful of a God do you have to be where raising someone from the dead is an add-on to the gloriousness of who you are? I think most of us in this room have experienced the death of a loved one. And it would actually still be hard for us to believe. I think many of us, if we saw our loved ones sit up after being dead, we would go, hold on, something's wrong with me. It's that incomprehensible. And Jesus simply walks into an unknown town and casually walks up to a woman whose life has been completely destroyed by death and restores everything she had again. That's our Savior. This is why we can title that, this series the Savior of the world. These are not Jewish people Jesus is doing this before. Because what Jesus was doing was the same thing that Elisha and Elijah were doing. They were showing God's concern isn't just for the people that he calls his people. It's for the entire world. And he's foreshadowing this good news is not just for you insiders. I'm going to start with the insiders, but he's already alluding. You insiders aren't really that interested in what we have to say, are you? Let's start drawing some applications before lunchtime. First of all, how we can reject the Savior. Now, some of us just outright reject the Savior. We, I've talked to some neighbors in my neighborhood who have actually said to me, I don't want to hear about God. I know you're going to try and tell me about him. Because they know I'm a pastor and they know that my wife is married to a pastor. That's kind of how we started out in our neighborhood. Welcome to the neighborhood. Don't talk about God. So I've met people that that's, that's reject. But there's a different kind of rejecting, isn't there? There's a rejecting that pretends that it's accepting, but it's not really through behavior. And actually, you know what I'm talking about because actually you've probably done this as I have. We can reject the Savior, actually, 
when we act the opposite of the centurion. And, and this actually is so unique in the text. And this is one of the ways I know this has got to be a true story. If you were Jewish and you were writing this, you would never write yourself this way. You would never put yourself as the bad guy and the Roman centurion as the good guy. Does that make sense? You can't find examples of this historically anywhere. You cannot find a culture in history ever that paints themselves poorly except for Christianity. Little freebie. But one of the reasons, one of the other things that Jesus is doing in this text is he's showing, I know this is going to sound crazy, guys, but this centurion gets something that I'm not even seeing amongst most of you. The Jews should know what Elijah looks like, what he has done. The centurion should have no business knowing the stories, but it's the centurion who responds properly because when Jesus like, shows up, and there's a parallel account of this actually in the book of Matthew that fills this out a bit, he's actually on his way to the house and the centurion's trying to stop him like he's embarrassed. He's like, no, 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 no don't come to my house. That'll, make, that'll essentially make you unclean. Like, I'm not worthy I'm a Gentile, Jesus. Do you not get this? I'm a Gentile. You, you shouldn't be in contact with me. It, it, Jesus, he has to stop Jesus in some ways from coming. And then the centurion says, I understand how this works anyways. I understand that if you're actually the savior of the world, if you're actually in authority, then you don't need to come to my house. You can just tell whatever spiritual power that you have What's going on? And they'll do your work for you. I should know. I'm a centurion. I have a hundred people underneath me. And Jesus is like, Jews, did you see what went on here? Do you realize his theology is better than yours? See, here's what some of us do. When we come to some hard thing that we find in Scripture about what God says we try to reposition it a bit. But it's actually just a way of rejecting the Savior. You see, there's something about the way this centurion worked or understood uh, uh, the, the, even how salvation worked. Like, first of all, there's someone who's, who's so in control, he doesn't even need to physically be present. By the way, this is how we can ask for these things today because of this theology that I don't even know how this centurion understood this. I mean, it just must have been like mind-blowing and Jesus is almost in some ways like, you guys, this is why we can't have nice things because you don't get this. You don't understand what's going on here. We reject him when we declare that we are worthy when actually we're not. You see, this, this Gentile understood that ultimately, even if he was asking for healing, he was not asking on the basis of his worthiness. Did you know the Jews tried to tell Jesus he is worthy? Why? Because he did nice things for them. He built them a synagogue. That's why he's worthy? Jesus is like, that's not why he's worthy. But we reject Jesus. Functionally, 
when we try to make ourselves worthy when truly we're not. And that's a hard word for us in our culture. Do you want to know why? Because when you walk out of here, someone will tell you, there's nothing wrong with you. You don't need a savior. You're worthy. You're perfect just the way you are. No, it's confusing because they say you're perfect just the way you are, but you, you should change your gender if you don't like the way you are. Uh, that's not a joke in some ways. That is the message. I, I'm not being critical. I'm just saying what's out there. Like it's, it's confusing at best. But Jesus says, I've come to explain to you that you're unworthy so that you can trust in me who is worthy. If you just let me, Jesus would say, define worthiness, you're going to benefit. But if you try to do it, you're going to benefit in no possible way. You're going to die. Secondly, we reject Jesus when we reject that he has all authority. This is, this is a big one. We do not like authority. And I'm, I'm ready to call this one out. I, I disagree. I think we love authority. We just hate bad authority. Amen? I mean, we love, we love, love, love authority when we're following the speed limit and some yahoo is going 150 on the deer foot. Man, we love authority. We are praying for authority. Come on, authority. Get that loser. Right? But when we're on the other side of it, when our kid's late for their soccer game, hockey game, whatever it might be, and we're the ones doing 150, we don't want authority to show up. We want to be the authority. I'm saying we love authority, we just don't like it when we don't have it and when we, it doesn't measure our standards. But here's what Jesus is saying. This man made no decision about whether he liked it or not. He simply stated, I understand authority. And if you're actually an authority, I know how it works. And I know that you have the ability to do something. That you don't even need to show up. I mean, I'm impressed with the centurion's theology. But we reject Jesus when we choose, willingly or unwillingly, to, to balk at authority. I mean, wasn't that what COVID was all about? Wasn't it just an authority issue times 25? I mean, every argument was about authority. Who's in it? Is God, is government? Am I? Is my church? Is my business? What, like, it's, it was all authority. We can laugh about it now, of course. Just kidding, we can't laugh about it now. <laughs> But essentially, I saw it over and over again, even in my own life. I saw that these were issues of authority. But if we don't understand that Jesus is all in authority and that he's the one who decides whether we are lost and how we can be found, then we're going to have trouble. We were at a Christmas play once, and uh, one of the preachers was trying to preach the gospel. And he had said, if you are lost. Jesus has found you. And I heard a little kid say out loud, I'm not lost. <laughs> uh, I was like, that's such a picture of our culture and me. 
That's what we do. When, when I say to you, you're lost inside, I know there's a part of your heart that's going, I'm not that lost, Trev. Give me a break. Do you see what I do? That's our hearts. But, but here's the thing. If, if, if Jesus is who he says he is, and he's in all authority, then it's a, a little bit like he, he actually then deserves to stay in authority over everything in our life. You guys ever sign up for a subscription program from the internet or get a program? Do you guys, are you guys alive and breathing in this culture? <laughs> Sometimes I get a program that I buy and they have two boxes. I agree to all the conditions. Secondly, I agree to receive emails from partners. And there are times when you can't get your program until you check the box that says, yes, I want spam. <laughs> you can't have one without the other. I think this is one of the ways Jesus is saying, you can't have me as your savior and not have me as your Lord. You have to check both boxes. You can't have one without the other. The program doesn't work. You can click and click and click and click and click. But your program won't download until you click that second box and says, I agree to have Jesus as my Lord as well. Which means he will ask you to do some things that you don't understand, that you don't like, but that are good for you. And I know you won't like them because I don't like them. I know what that's like. Here are ways we doubt the Savior. First of all, we are always looking for a better savior. This is, this is moving on to the John the Baptist story. Now, isn't it strange that only a couple of chapters earlier, we have John the Baptist, who is actually saying correct theological things about Jesus. And, and Jesus describes him, and, and Luke describes him as the path maker, the way maker for Jesus. He's making the path. And here we have John actually asking a very bold question. Like, are you really it, or should we ask someone else? Think, think about that. <laughs> I mean, I am amazed that Jesus graciously answers this. Because... This displays some doubt that's been going on from John the Baptist. Here, here's what the doubt's about. You see, John the Baptist, JTB, he knew that Jesus described himself as the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 61, which says that the, he would preach the good news to the poor, he would give sight to the blind, he would make the lame weep, he would set the prisoners free from captivity. Oh, wait a second. At this point, John's in prison. So there's a very likelihood, I think my friend, one of the greatest preachers around, Aaron pointed this out. This is John going, hey, wait a second, you said you were going to set captives free, but I'm sitting in prison. You said you were going to bring vengeance and justice in this world and right all the wrongs. And I'm sitting in prison because I told someone they were sinful and I was right. What am I doing in prison? Are you the Savior or is there someone else who's going to have to come and do that part of the Messiah work? Now do you see a little bit what John is saying? 
he, he's actually in some ways saying, Jesus, I, I like a lot of what you did. Jesus, I, I, love, I love what you're doing with this world. But if I could give you some advice, how about you start working on the justice side? How about you start bringing justice in this world? And you're welcome to start with me. You're welcome to put Herod in his place. Because that dirty, rotten scoundrel does not deserve to even be in power. And I'm in prison for preaching repentance like you told me to. Now, do you ever feel like John the Baptist sometimes? That you love a lot of what Jesus does for you. But then there comes a time when they're like, Did you, are you really asking me to do this, Jesus? You know, it'd be great if you could just follow my plan a bit for a while. Because you don't seem to understand timing all that well. You don't seem to complete the package. I, I, I've got justice I want now. You ever look at the internet and just wish justice would come? I mean, almost anything on the internet. All the injustices that we see, all the injustices that we experience in life, in our families, the injustices that are not necessarily injustice the way some would, but we work hard to raise our children and then they just don't love Jesus the way we thought they would. How come, God? Come on. If, you, if your God stepped in here and complete the program, you said... You see, it's not that hard of a stretch to imagine the doubts that John the Baptist has, but listen to the way the Savior responds. He says, you know, you guys know your prophets. You think John the Baptist is a prophet. You didn't go out in the desert to see someone who is all willy-nilly, a reed swayed by the wind, someone who just goes with the flow of culture. No, you didn't go in the desert to see that. You didn't go someone who was just high on his horse and had a person of privilege. You went out and see a prophet, and yes, he was a prophet, and he's the best one. But John, you need to hear this. I am not here to judge sinners. I'm here to pay for their sin. And I will bring justice but I'm not eager to bring justice. I actually want as many as possible to experience the raw grace of my gospel. That's why I'm here. I'm here to preach good news to poor people. And spoiler alert, everyone's a poor person. That's what he says. You go back and you tell John that. You tell him, I'm the one who decides the priorities. I'm the one who will bring justice in my time. But you have to know this about my heart. I'm here to preach the good news to the poor. I am not here to follow your agenda. Now, I have noticed in the last couple of years a number of people that have 
said something along the lines of, I just hope Jesus returns soon. He can return every time. And I understand that poll. I do. I get it. But here's what I would say. Do you know what the Bible says? That, that God is long-suffering. He's taking his time, not because he doesn't know what he's doing, but because his heart is, he wants more people to be able to repent. Now, is that your heart? Is that my heart? No. We want to get out of our suffering, don't we? We want justice. We want God to step in now. We want him to do it on our timeline. And Jesus is trying to winsomely tell us, friends, if you just saw a picture of my heart and how good I actually am, you would not want me to return before as many people as possible could hear the good news. Do you know who's not hoping Jesus returns soon? Those who have loved ones who don't know Jesus. They are hoping he holds off. What's the difference between those two? Obviously, the difference is, if Jesus is this good, then more people need to know. You see how even, even in this process, what John is trying to display through his, in some ways, his, his, his silly request of Jesus, and what Jesus is trying to winsomely say is, I, I want you to see who I am, because when you see who I am, it'll change your life. There's the last part of it is, is, a, is a weird little parable. And this is one of the ways we can respond to Jesus. We can actually allow Jesus to offend us. We live in a culture where we think that being offended is something that we shouldn't have to ever experience, don't we? I watched some fun Jordan Peterson interviews where someone would say something offensive and and then they, he was asked, well, like, what gives you the right to be offensive? And he says, well, you, you just offended me, so wait a second. You, you have the right to offend me, but I don't have the right to offend you. And of course, the question asker moved on very quickly. But we, we live in a world that's trying to avoid being offended. And, and here, here's what I would say is, one of the ways we can respond rightly to Jesus is to allow him to offend us. To, to just, if, if we think we have a right to be offended by God, don't you think God has a right to be offended by us? Like, isn't it at least possible? Um, a friend of mine said recently, uh, this. He said, I'm not concerned um, about being offensive. I'm actually concerned that the church doesn't have things that it's offended by. I was like, what, what do you mean by that? Like, oh, what, what are you offended by then? And he said, I am deeply offended by the fact that Jesus says I can't be independent. I want to be. It's offensive to me. It reminded me that there's something that Jesus will say that will offend us all. But secondly, we can not just allow Jesus to offend us, but we can do this because 
he was, he wants to offend us so that he can take our offense for us. He wants to offend us so that he can withhold God's offense against us. You see what Jesus is trying to do? Nancy Guthrie says it so well when she says this. John didn't fully understand that in his first coming, Jesus came not to judge sinners, but to bear sin. Jesus came not to punish transgressors, but to be numbered among them. You see, we can also respond to Jesus by simply accepting his plan of salvation instead of insisting on our own. Instead of insisting on your own version of whatever savior you think you need, you can simply say, mine's not that great, yours is better. And I will forego mine and accept yours because even when I don't understand it, you promise that it is better and I trust you in that. That's how we can respond to Jesus. You see, in the text, this little parable Jesus told was essentially, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. This is, this is like, he's talking about kids in the marketplace. So in, in this day and age, kids would play in the street. And what do kids do when they play games and they don't have toys? They, they mimic what they see in culture, right? There's two things, two celebrations they saw. They saw funerals, they saw weddings. Uh, funerals had emo music. Weddings did not. Emo, for those of you who are not millennial, is emotional music. And these kids who are playing this game are inviting other kids and they're saying, hey, do you want to play a game with us? Let's play funeral. So they play a funeral song. And the kid's like, I don't want to play. Okay, it's fine. I know you've run into kids like this. Maybe you are a kid like this. Okay, fine. I've overheard these conversations, I feel like, a thousand times in my home. Well, well, let's play the wedding game. So we play wedding music. I don't want to play that either. And one kid will go, you don't want to play anything, do you? So, well, I want to play this. And what that ends up showing is a kid who says, I don't want to play any game that I'm not in charge of. You see, that's what's really happening here. Jesus says, you know what your real problem is? You can't give up what you're in charge of. You're like those kids who are pouty and won't play these games with other kids. You have to have it your way. He is talking to the Jews. He's saying, my way is better. Stop pouting. Stop refusing to play the games. This is an invitation that Jesus says, one day you're going to find out wisdom will have her children. One day you're going to find out I'm right. Don't wait till that day. Do it now. The call is the same for us, friends. Some of you are waiting for more information. Some of you are waiting for more question problem solving. Some of you are waiting for the right time to, to trust Jesus more. Here's what I would suggest. Now is the right time. Now is always the right time to respond to whatever Jesus and his spirit are asking of you. He might be pushing hard this morning on the lordship. Yeah, you want me as a savior. Do you really want me as your lord? You need to check that second box. Maybe he's saying, you're obedient in a lot of areas. 
But this one, you just will not give up because you're in charge of it. Let go. He may be saying, you know, you have heard a lot about me and you're waiting for more information. You don't need more. You don't need more miracles. You don't need more information. You just need me. I don't know what it is, friends, that Jesus is calling to you because I'm not the Holy Spirit. But I do know that no matter who you are, there's something that he desperately wants to tell you about himself, and that is he loves you so much, if you would just but trust him, he will show you. But you're going to have to check both boxes and trust him with your life, friends. And if that's you this morning and you want me to pray for you, would you just pray with me, along with me as I invite the band up? And so, Jesus, Lord, Christ, ruler and king, it's in your name that we ask for more of your spirit to drive out the childishness that we find in our own hearts. The pouty child in us that refuses to let go. We need your help. We will not be able to drive it away ourselves. We will not be able to see it ourselves without your spirit revealing to us all that you're doing. And so we ask for this help. And we ask through the power of the name that is above all names, that heals the blind, that makes mute people talk, that makes dead people come alive. It's in that name that we ask for the real miracle, which is to understand that we poor people need the good news. Would you do that for us this morning? In your name we pray, amen.